love, peace, unity, understanding, harmony amongst one another. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Rip, roaring, ready to go. I give you my sports talk podcast with entertaining value. I give you the most entertaining, thought-provoking podcast that you can listen to. Rate, review, subscribe anywhere where you listen to podcasts and you will not be disappointed. I give you football, basketball, baseball, college football, college basketball, UFC, MMA, and of course, the loves of my life, the Georgetown Hoyas. And sometimes I might go a little bit farther and talk about what else is happening in the world. Wendell's World in Sports, the most awesome podcast that you can listen to. Rate, review, subscribe anywhere where you listen to your podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the most unique, entertaining, and compelling sports talk podcast you'll ever listen to. Let's be great. Let's be great. Wendell's World in Sports with the one and only Wendell Wallace. Giannis charging down the lane to the rim. Double clutch. No good. Tipped in. Giannis tipped it home. Subscribe, rate, and review anywhere and everywhere you listen to this and all your favorite podcasts. And now, from Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Rip, Roin, and ready to rumble, Wendell Wallace. Bonjour, bonsoir, Monsieur Matt Wendell. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Konnichiwa, shalom, wassalam alaikum, namaste. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Good morning, good abend, Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Bonjour, bonsoir, Monsieur Mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. In case I forgot, K-Pasta, me amigos, me llamo Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. Before I begin, I just have to ask the question. What's happening, man? How you doing? You're doing everything that needs to be done to make sure that your place, your space, your neighborhood, your household, your block, your community is a better place to be through love, peace, unity, understanding, listening, learning. Shut up. Listen, learn from those of a different race, of a different gender, of a different financial background, uh, who might love a different person, who might worship another God if they worship a God at all. Are we doing everything that needs to be done to make sure that we give those people the proper respect so we can learn about what it's like to be those people so we can take it back to the younger generation and make sure that the utopian society, which we don't live in right now because we're too ignorant, we're too racist, we're too selfish, we're too narrow-minded. All right, my generation, your generation, the generation before and after, are we making sure that, our, that the younger generation, that your children's generation will not have to go through the same bullshit that we are going through right now, that we've been going through for some folks for a couple of centuries. Let's hope that we can kind of start that movement uh, starting in 2022. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Man, a lot of things I want to get into, man. The regular season in the NFL is done. It is over. Sunday was uh, interesting, to say the least, but uh, we have the playoff set. We have the playoff set in the AFC, we have the playoff set in the NFC. Speaking about the NFC going first, Green Bay has a first round bye, being the number one seed, finishing the 
season with a 13 and 4 record. So Sunday afternoon, this upcoming Sunday afternoon, what that's going to be the 15th, I believe, at one o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Number seven seeded the Philadelphia Eagles, fresh fresh off their beatdown of getting beat down by the Dallas Cowboys. They're the number seven seed. They will be in Tampa, Florida to play the Tampa Tom Buccaneers Sunday afternoon in the NFC at 430 at the number six seeded San Francisco 49ers at the number three seeded Dallas Cowboys. I'm going to get into that contest or more likely want to get into the San Francisco 49ers a little bit later on in the podcast and then on Martin Luther King Day Monday Night Football where we have the number five seeded Arizona Cardinals at the number four seeded LA Rams two teams that are coming off losses the last uh, week of the season where they were actually trying to win the football game unlike the Green Bay Packers who lost to the Detroit Lions for basically not playing Aaron Rodgers in the second half and it was no big deal I really think if you take a look at this game between Arizona and the Rams. It was almost a godsend that Arizona lost um, to Seattle the end of the season because if you take a look at the record, you take a look at how they play, they are a much better team on the road than they are at home. So the Rams, who are scuffling a little bit right now, that should be an interesting game. Really no upset either way if Arizona or the Rams win. So that's the playoff round the first round of the playoffs in the nfc sunday let me see we start sunday afternoon at one philadelphia at tampa bay sunday afternoon 4 30 eastern standard time san francisco at dallas monday night arizona at the los angeles rams then you move to the afc tennessee the tennessee titans have the first round by so they will have the weekend off so saturday afternoon at 4 30 is going to be the Las Vegas Raiders, the number five seed at the number four seed at Cincinnati Bengals. Sunday night at 8.15 Eastern time is going to be an interesting matchup between the New England Patriots, seeded number six, at the number three seeded Buffalo Bills. Let's just hope that unlike the Monday night football game where the weather was rather, uh, I don't know, what's the word that we can look for, uh, undelightful. Hopefully that we can get the weather in a situation where both teams could be using their strength and be using their entire arsenal, both offensively and defensively. So that wild card game is going to be starting Sunday night at 8.15. Then, oh, excuse me, Saturday night at 8.15, excuse me. Then Sunday night at 8.15, we have the Pittsburgh Steelers, the number seven seeded uh, team in the AFC. They're going to be at the number two seeded Kansas City football team. So AFC, <coughs> Excuse me, AFC again. Tennessee has the first round by Saturday afternoon at 4.30. The Las Vegas Raiders will be on the road in Cincinnati. Saturday night at 8.15, the number six seeded New England Patriots will be at the number three seeded Buffalo Bills. And then Sunday night, 8.15 Eastern Standard Time, the Pittsburgh Steelers, last uh, go around for Ben Roethlisberger in the playoffs. He will be in Kansas City along with the Steelers to play the number two seeded Kansas City football team. So, how do we get here? How do we kind of navigate our way through this? Because if you take a look now with the season being expanded by one game, as I always mentioned before, I mentioned this really when I started talking at the beginning of the season about the NFL, even when training camps first started. I said this, I said, look, man, for, for me to go ahead every single week and start having proclamations and start having these, you know, concrete, no doubt about it, uh, thoughts and opinions about what team is doing what good or bad for the most part you knew buffalo or excuse me you knew detroit was going to stink out loud 
You knew Jacksonville with Urban Meyer was going to stink out loud. You knew Houston was going to stink out loud. Yeah, so there were some absolutes that we could probably put down in terms of, look, Jacksonville, at the beginning of the season, we could come out and say, in all likelihood, Jacksonville is not going to be making the playoffs. In all likelihood, the Houston Texans are not going to be making the playoffs. In all likelihood, even with the acquisition of Jared Goff, the Detroit Lions are not going to be making the playoffs. So there's some things, of course, where we could say with some pretty much, you know, high level of confidence. But for the most part, man, when you're speaking about these other teams, when you're speaking about the Baltimore Ravens and you're speaking about the uh, Indianapolis Colts and you're speaking about the Los Angeles Chargers and you're speaking about the Los Angeles Rams and you're speaking about the Green Bay Packers and the Minnesota Vikings and everywhere else, and the, the, the majority of these teams, Man, we, we don't know exactly what's going to be happening from week to week to week. First four weeks, the second, you know, four weeks of the season where you accumulate eight games. We, we don't know. We don't know. Halfway through the season, there's some teams with some records where you just say they've got to be in the playoffs. They're going to be in the playoffs. And then there's other teams where they're on the outside looking in and you might get wrapped up in a performance that they had against a team and they might get blown out or they might have, you know, lose to a bad team, which going into the season, that team was supposed to be vying for a championship, vying for a playoff, and they might lose to a team that stinks. And you might say, oh, well, how in the world are they going to uh, get into the playoffs? How in the world can we really legitimize them as being true Super Bowl contenders when they can't even beat this team? When they gave us that type of performance. So it happens week after week after week. And that's one of the great things about NFL. Number one, the folks who bet on this and make money, God bless you. You earned every penny, man. God bless you how you guys can navigate and situate and read and learn and educate yourselves in terms on a week-to-week basis. Who's going to be doing what? Who's going to be, which team is going to be good? Which team is not going to be good? Which team do you think is going to cover? Which team do you think is going to go on the over? All of that stuff, man. God bless you because I have no idea. That's what makes watching the NFL so fun because you, you, you don't know. As they say, you think you know what Jim Mora would say when he was the coach of the New Orleans Saints, or was it the Indianapolis Colts? I forgot, but when Mora said, you think you know, but you don't know, and you never will. That comes from uh, that comes from the heart, and that comes from knowledge, man, in terms of us watching these football games. How do we know, man? How do we know from a week-to-week basis what's going to be happening in terms of, oh, yeah, it's a lock. So these guys who bet on these games and they make that money and they hit their parlays and all that kind of stuff, I bow down to you, man. They give you a high five. They give you a soul shake. They give you a pound and all that kind of stuff. Your reverence, I give you my reverence on that one, man, because it's absolutely, uh, (laughs) for me, it's damn near impossible to uh, figure out what's happening in the NFL on a week-to-week basis. So you take a look at these teams, man, and every team has a story. Every team has an up-and-down story. Every team has a, man, I don't know if this is going to be happening. The fan base can attest to it. Even a team like the Green Bay Packers, 13-4. and Let's just call it what it is. We threw out the last game because, for the most part, the games of consequences for Green Bay this season was 16, going 13-3, and wrapping up the number one seed in the NFC for the playoffs, right? You would think that, oh, yeah, every single game, after every single game, people would be like, yeah, can't, um, Green Bay this, Green Bay that, no big deal. But if you remember, remember Green Bay Packer fans, you remember that opening day of the season where it was coming off all of that Aaron Rodgers bullshit where he was speaking about, I'm not going to play, I don't want to play, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and continue you know, being a Jeopardy host or I'll go find some other game show or 
I'll go ahead and spend my time with my girlfriend, my fiance, whatever the relationship status is with her. I'll go down to the islands or I'll go to a place of seclusion and relaxation and do that. All of these things I have as far as at my disposal rather than showing up at the Green Bay Packers uh, facility and getting ready for the 2021 season. Remember all of that stuff. Remember the summer of Aaron Rodgers going Karen on us, going Diva on us, going Diana Ross on us in terms of going Mariah Carey on us in terms of, uh, you know, I'm not doing this and I'm not doing that. So he comes to camp. He comes to the first game of the season against the New Orleans Saints, a game that had to be played in Jacksonville because of the hurricane. And the Saints with Jameis Winston put a beat down on the Packers like you wouldn't believe. Aaron Rodgers was not good at all through a couple of interceptions. The last interception that he threw, it was almost like a fuck it, I don't give a fuck anymore type of interception. So the Green Bay Packers started off the season going, what the hell is going on, man? This last dance for Aaron Rodgers, possibly with the Green Bay Packers, is going to start off with this. Then you had the Packers going through the season, as I mentioned it before on other podcasts, in terms of every time we would watch them play, Packer fans, what would we come away with? That was a good victory. That was a solid victory. That was a professional victory. But it wasn't anything that blew your socks off. Green Bay for the entire season, despite going 13-4 or 13-3 in games, the consequence, name me a game where they look like, man, this team is just whooping ass and taking names, and they look head and shoulders above everything, every other team in the NFL. Going into this playoff, yeah, they have the best record in the league. Yeah, they have Aaron Rodgers playing at an MVP level, all of those type of things. But, man, can you... Uh, can you name me, can you say without any question whatsoever that they're going to make it to the Super Bowl, that they're going to win the Super Bowl with everything riding with the Green Bay Packers this year concerning Aaron Rodgers and if Aaron Rodgers goes to another team or if Aaron Rodgers had been playing for the Green Bay Packers this year, exactly what does that mean for that organization going forward? We saw Jordan Love in the game against Kansas City where he didn't look good at all. He didn't look ready at all. At the very least, man, he didn't look ready to do what Aaron Rodgers did after four years of sitting on the bench behind Brett Favre and coming into the uh, first game of the season and showing, I think it was that first game for Aaron Rodgers as the Green Bay Packers, the Aaron Rodgers era starting. I think it was a Monday Night Football game. Was it the Monday Night Football game against Arizona way back when? I don't know. But I just remember when Aaron Rodgers, and there was this anticipation about, man, this guy's been behind Brett Favre for years, and we've heard so many good things about him, and we know the talent is there, and we know he's been groomed, he's been matured, he's been natured, all these type of things. When Aaron Rodgers got into the game and he started playing that first possession, you know, yeah, this guy's the real deal. All right, we've got something here. This is a quarterback that's going to be doing some things because he showed off that talent. And even though the team around him wasn't good enough to be the team that would be competing for championships like he's doing right now, 15, 16 years later, you knew that, yeah, you had a quarterback that you could work with. And you had a quarterback that could be a franchise quarterback. You had a quarterback that could be an elite quarterback. So all we needed to do was just continue to have him mature and grow as a starting quarterback, as a franchise quarterback, and start putting the pieces around him. And we'll have the Aaron Rodgers that we all know and love, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, and one of the greatest quarterbacks of his generation. All of that is to say 
that if Aaron Rodgers leaves next season for Green Bay, Jordan Love has not shown us that he's that guy. Jordan Love has not shown us that he's going to do what Aaron Rodgers did, replacing Brett Favre. At least in the games that we saw him this year, the second half against the Detroit Lions last week and the game against Kansas City. Now, if Aaron Rodgers does leave, then maybe during the offseason, I don't know, man, there might be some transformation or there might be some growth or there might be something in Jordan Love where he comes and starts for the uh, Packers for the 2022 season, if that's going to be the case, where you might say, hey, you know what, in a couple of years from now, we might have some things going on right now. But as of right now, man, for Green Bay, if you're a Green Bay Packers fan, you have to say that this, this is it for us. If Aaron Rodgers is truly going to leave, this is going to be it for us to see what we can do to win a championship. The window will close as soon as Aaron Rodgers leaves. I'm not saying that Green Bay is going to fall off the cliff and become the Detroit Lions or the Jacksonville Jaguars or the New York Jets. But that team that has been one of the elites for the past two or three years in the NFC with Brett Favre winning MVPs and Devontae Adams elevating himself to being one of the elite wide receivers in the game and the Packers being true Super Bowl contenders. That level of where the Packers are right now, that's going to be gone if Rodgers decides to go somewhere else. So for Packer fans, you have to go into the season seriously, excuse me, seriously, seriously thinking about that. And if you think that I'm bullshitting, go ahead and ask the, um, go ahead and ask the New Orleans Saints how tough it is to replace a, replace a legendary quarterback. Drew, Drew Brees didn't play this season. How's New Orleans doing? Especially in this age now where we have COVID and everything else, we don't know what's going to be happening down the road in terms of is COVID just going to be part of our lives where it was like, you know what? Hey, man, a guy's missing a game today. A coach is missing a game because he tested positive for COVID. There might be some vaccines. There might be some going on that mitigates the sub, the uh, effects of the virus to, you know, where we're not at the uh, place where it was almost like, man, you know, what is it a death sentence? Is it something where, you know, someone's going to be gravely ill? Remember when we had to shut the world down, what, about a year ago or so, when uh, COVID first came onto the scene and, we didn't know and you saw the NBA go into a bubble and we saw all of these precautions being taken for sporting events and everything else. We're not going to be going back to that again, but this is going to be a situation where, hey man, moving forward, we might have to be living in a world where it's like, yeah, someone came down with COVID. Someone's going to be missing a few days of work. Someone's going to have to be isolated. Someone's going to have to go through the protocol. And even if you're not deathly ill, even if you're not going to be hooked up to an ICU, even though, even if it means you're, you know, it's a death sentence. Even if your symptoms are going to be mild on an everyday basis, this is what's going to be happening. Moving on to the NFL, that's what it's going to be facing. And you're going to be the Green Bay Packers facing that future without the best quarterback, one of the best quarterbacks in NFL history, uh, Aaron Rodgers, possibly moving forward for next season and beyond. So for that knowledge, if that happens, which is a real possibility, Green Bay Packer fans, this is it, man. This is it. Ride or die. This is the 1998 Chicago Bulls. Because your Michael Jordan named Aaron Rodgers ain't coming back. Or the expectations or the thought process or the scuttlebutt is there's a good likelihood that 
he ain't coming back. So enjoy this ride if you're the Green Bay Packers, whether you win the Super Bowl or whether you lose the first game that you play in the playoffs. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. So every team, as I mentioned before, man, is a situation where they've got a storyline. They've got something interesting going into the final week of the season. When you speak about how do we get there in the AFC and the NFC, if you're speaking about the AFC, the final week of the season, the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Las Vegas Raiders were on the outside looking in on the playoffs. Everybody was giving their tributes. Remember that emotional Monday night football game that the Pittsburgh Steelers had against the Cleveland Browns? where Ben Roethlisberger was very appreciative of the crowd and he was getting very emotional and the Steeler teammates were getting emotional because at that time, while there was a possibility that the Pittsburgh Steelers, they were not officially eliminated from the playoff, there was the thought process of, well, you know, the Chargers are the Chargers and the Indianapolis Colts are playing so well, it's going to be a really difficult situation for Pittsburgh to navigate themselves from being out of the playoff to being in the playoffs. And the Raiders at that time again outside looking in they could see they could see playoffville from the suburbs of not being in the playoffs but the thought press process of them getting into the playoffs the the notion that they could get into the playoffs were uh, really not there because as I mentioned before the way that the Indianapolis Colts were playing going into the final two or three weeks of the season and the Los Angeles Chargers so I mean that was a situation where outside looking in, but both teams made improbable runs to get into the playoffs, right? In fact, Pittsburgh being in the playoffs, first time they've been in the top seven in the conference since week 10. It's almost two months ago when they had a 5-3-1 and one record. First time Las Vegas, when it counts the most in terms of being in the playoffs, being the top seven seed, who, gives a, who, who cares if you're the top 17 seed in September or after eight games or after 13 games? Where are you at at the end of the season? First time for Las Vegas being in the top seven since week nine. That's when they had a five and two record. At one point in the season, the seasons were the number 11 seed after the 14th week with a six and six and one record. They built the foundation to make the playoff run despite being mediocre and, and inconsistent after a five-game winning streak at the beginning of the season after starting uh, one and two. So really, you could say that the foundation was laid for them to make the playoffs based at the beginning of the season when, we, when they were winning football games. Normally, it takes a team to go on like a four or five or six-game run to go from the doldrums of not being in the playoffs to being in the playoffs. The Steelers, on the other hand, if you take a look at how they got into the playoffs, they they, they didn't go they didn't get there on some four or five or six game run. They started the season that I mentioned before, five and three. Then after that they went one, three, and one. They tied Detroit sixteen to sixty. That's when uh Mason Rudolph was playing quarterback. Remember that game when Ben Roethlisberger was out because he was placed on the um COVID-19 list, so Mason Rudolph came in after that game. They gave up 41 points to the Los Angeles Chargers. They gave up 41 points to the Cincinnati Bengals on consecutive weeks before finally beating Baltimore 20-19, but there was some speculation. There was a thought process, especially the way that they were looking on offense where it was like, hey man, this is going to be a year where Pittsburgh is not going to be making the playoffs, right? So they finished the season going 3-2, and two, beating Baltimore again to 
put themselves in a position to make the playoffs. And with Las Vegas uh, beating the Chargers on Sunday night, luckily, I'll speak about the Los Angeles Chargers, Brandon Staley's head coach of the Chargers. I'll speak about some of his decisions. Interesting. Very interesting. So avoiding a tie. Las Vegas kicking the game-winning field goal, 35-32. The Los Angeles Chargers are out. And the Pittsburgh Steelers are in. Pittsburgh Steelers fans say, phew, Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Las Vegas, man. We're speaking about teams on the outside looking in, moving into week 18. It was a situation where the Indianapolis Colts, the Los Angeles Chargers controlled their destiny. And really the uh, Las Vegas Raiders did too. But man, the adversity that this team faced throughout the season and the and the being the position of where they were to get themselves into that into that space where they could go ahead and get themselves into the playoffs. They started the season great, right? Went 3-0, and beat the Ravens on opening night in overtime in the first game at the uh, Al, Davis, Al Davis Stadium or uh, Allegiant Field before a home crowd, before a Rochester home crowd. First time that the crowd was allowed in the stadium. Started the season, I mentioned before, 3-0, and went on the road, beat Pittsburgh after the Steelers, beat Buffalo the week before on the road where Pittsburgh was considered one of the better franchises, or excuse me, one of the better teams going into the season. Then after they go on the road, go from the West Coast to the East Coast to beat the Steelers, they beat Miami at home in overtime before losing a Monday night football game against the LA Chargers that was built to be a battle for first place in the AFC West. Okay. Then they go ahead and lose to uh, Chicago, giving Justin Fields his first win of the season after Chicago and Fields look absolutely helpless and pathetic in that game, I believe it was, against Cleveland. So Vegas 3-2 and two, won their next two games in a row to have a record of 5-2, and two, then lost five of their last of their next six games. They lost on the road to the New York Giants. And how pathetic are the New York Giants, huh? Woo! Before being embarrassed on Sunday Night Football by Kansas City 41-14. And what many people would say, the game for Kansas City, if Kansas City comes back and wins you know, went to Super Bowl, they will point to the turnaround of their season being that Sunday night football game at on the road against the Raiders. They will point to that. So as I mentioned before, the Vegas Raiders coming in at 5-2, and two, then they lose on the road to the Giants, and then in the statement game, a game to gouge how good they are when they're going up against still the AFC defending champions Kansas City football team. They go ahead on a Sunday night when everything is rip-roaring and ready to go. The crowd is hype, and we're going to go ahead. We're going to put the final nail in the coffin of the Kansas City football team in terms of being true contenders for the AFC championship when the uh, when Casey came into the game struggling it's, it's themselves, especially on the offensive end. And then Patrick Mahomes goes ahead and throws five touchdown passes. The Kansas City Chiefs for the first time in it seemed like 18 years score 41 points and absolutely humiliate and embarrass the Las Vegas Raiders and start that momentum swing for Kansas City to put them where they are now. That right there was kind of like, I don't know, man. I mean, all of this talk and all of this discussion about the Raiders being a playoff team, that kind of went far, far, far away. 
And then after that game, they were blown out by Cincinnati 32-13. They lost at home to Washington when my Red, ooh, sorry, when my uh, Snyder skins were uh, making their move in, in the middle of a four-game winning streak. They lost to uh, Washington 17-15 before losing to Kansas City on the road again 48-9. And, that, and at that point, Nobody, I, I live out here in Las Vegas. Nobody was speaking about the Raiders. No one was caring about the Raiders. We have the uh, Golden Knights, the hockey team right now, doing some things. A team that made the Stanley Cup their first year in the league. A team that's been perennial winners. So the attention quickly shifts from what's happening with the Raiders to being focused on the Las Vegas uh, Golden Golden Knights. And especially when you're speaking about the NHL team being a team that was born and raised right here in Las Vegas. We didn't have to go to another state in another city to take another team to have them be transplanted here in Las Vegas, even if it was an NFL team. So for a large number of folks, not just here in the community of Las Vegas, but really in the uh, in the NFL communities, the Las Vegas Raiders were out of sight, out of mind in terms of being true playoff contenders after losing on the road to Kansas City 48-9. to But the Raiders at that point were the number 12 seed after week 14 with a 6-7 and record. But guess what? They got hot. They beat Cleveland. Yeah, Cleveland without, was without Baker Mayfield. Yeah, they were playing with Nick Mullins. Yeah, I believe... Uh, Nick Chubb was playing in that game, but I don't think Kareem Hunt was. But for the most part, they beat an underwhelming injury and COVID-depleted Cleveland Browns team on a last-second field goal on the road. Then they beat Denver, and this is where it's almost like, hey, now, hey, now. They went ahead and beat Indianapolis on the road, and then that Sunday night game against the Chargers. Everything started working into place where a team that was off the radar in terms of being true contenders for a playoff spot after getting humiliated and beat down against the uh, Kansas City football team on the road, all of a sudden is a win away from getting themselves in the playoffs, which exactly what they did, which is uh, pretty remarkable when you think about it after all the off-field distractions, the John Gruden resigning because he decided that he was going to play racist and stupid ass on the on the email game. Henry Ruggs, the third, killing somebody while driving drunk. Uh, their other first-round draft pick thought he was going to be a thug and a gangster and keep it real and be a G and all that stupid stuff that went down with him causing the Vegas Raiders to say bye-bye as far as their employment with him is concerned. So all of this nonsense, all of, this, all of these distractions, which... NFL teams hate, they hate with a passion when we're speaking about a team getting ready for a game and anything outside of that for them is just something where it's kind of like nails on a chalkboard annoying. So all of this real life stuff that went down, which really affected their preparation or their focus on that preparation, the fact that Derek Carr and those guys got it done to where they're in the playoffs now, regardless of what happens in their game against Cincinnati, I think that it's uh, it's really, really something else. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wall is so glad you could be with us. So the two teams, as I spoke about, Vegas Raiders, Pittsburgh Steelers, getting into the playoffs, even though going into the last uh, week of the season, they were on the outside looking in. You could say that they replaced in the playoffs two of the biggest disappointments in the league. Now, when I say biggest disappointments in the league, I am talking about with the definition that I'm giving this is 
what they needed to do to secure a playoff berth from a couple of weeks before where they are right now, inexcusable, unacceptable for the fact that the Indianapolis Colts and the Los Angeles Chargers are not in the playoffs. And if you're a fan of both of those squads, and you're a fan of the Los Angeles Chargers, ain't too many of them out there, especially in the Los Angeles area. Man, you need to be feeling mighty pissed about what happened. Especially when we're speaking about the Indianapolis Colts. What in the hell was that? They only needed one win. One win in the last uh, two games. One on the road, one at home. The game against the Raiders, they should have beaten on the, uh, at home. They came out flat. They came out unprepared. And it's almost like, hey, you know what? If we lose to the Raiders, no big deal because we're going to be playing the Jacksonville Jaguars. And all we need to do is show up and we'll beat the Jacksonville Jaguars. The, the Indianapolis Colts seem like they were treating the Jacksonville Jaguar games the way Georgia University would face playing Georgia Southern or Georgia State. It was almost the disrespect given by Indianapolis in terms of playing Jacksonville, even the way they played against the Raiders. You you would think that the way they played against Las Vegas, losing in overtime 20-17, to it was almost like they gave the next game against Jacksonville the same respect as, say, for instance, Clemson playing South Carolina State or playing a school from the MEAC or the SWAC. Gave it that kind of respect in terms of all we need to do is show up and we'll win the football game. So the fact that we blew an opportunity to clinch a playoff spot at home against Las Vegas, don't worry about it. We're playing Jacksonville. We'll go ahead and we'll get this. Oh, shit. 26-11. Lost to the worst team in football in embarrassing, shocking, unacceptable, inexcusable, dispiriting fashion. Something's got to happen, man. Something's going to happen with the squad after something like this. The loss, and you can sit there and talk about, well, you know, Indianapolis has lost uh, eight straight games in Jacksonville, and even one of those games was a quote-unquote home game for Jacksonville in London. Unacceptable, inexcusable. Inexcusable for what happened to the Colts. I, I don't know what to do moving forward. I don't know exactly what to do after all. This expectations were raised. Right? If you would have asked somebody, an Indianapolis Colts fans with some of the warts and some of the weaknesses that they had on this football team. And you would have said, hey, look, you know what? The Colts are going to finish 9-8, and eight, one game out of the playoffs. Most people at the beginning of the season who are Colts fans would have been like, all right, you know. I mean, I would like for them to get into the playoffs, but I, I can live with that. That's, that's not bad. I mean, that's a good stepping stone. That's a, that's a good start, I would believe. But not after the way they got themselves into position to... Uh, get themselves into the playoffs. And as I mentioned before on many podcasts that I did going into week 13 and week 14 and week 15 and week 16 in terms of Indianapolis, I thought, man, I had even had a, I even had a discussion segment on one of my podcasts talking about which team is more dangerous from a wild card position to uh, score an upset or to have an upset or to make a run at the Super Bowl, both in the AFC and the NFC. And for the NFC, I still have the uh, 49ers, San Francisco 49ers. At least they didn't disappoint. At least they didn't choke on the bone. At least they didn't wet the bed. At least they didn't uh, uh, play with no passion or energy or respect for the other team. So they're in. But in the AFC, I said that it was the Indianapolis Colts. And look at the Colts right now on the outside looking in saying bye-bye, one, two, three, Cancun. 
So the Colts started the season 1-4, giving a game away to Lamar Jackson and the Baltimore Ravens on Monday Night Football. Then they won 8 out of their last uh, 10, and I was drinking the Kool-Aid, man. I was drinking the Kool-Aid-flavored Indianapolis Colts. That was a team during that stretch. They blew out the Buffalo Bills on the road. They beat the defending, uh, they, they beat the San Francisco 49ers on the road. They played possession for possession with the defending Super Bowl champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers before losing 38-31 to 31 because they turned the ball over five times in week 13. They beat the New England Patriots week 15, 27-17. You remember that game? Jonathan Taylor ran for what? 177 yards on 29 carries, and that was the week that we were speaking about who's the real MVP or who would you vote for as far as the MVP is concerned right now, Aaron Rodgers or Jonathan Taylor. Remember on the Shannon and Skip and all those other shows, they were speaking about that in terms of a uh, discussion point. A team after beating Arizona on Christmas Day on the road while seven starters were out, they were 9-6. Who would have foretold that they would be missing the playoffs because they couldn't beat Jacksonville? A team that blew out Buffalo on the road? A team that beat up New England? A team that beat Arizona uh, uh, without their full squad is going to lose to Jacksonville? Man, someone please explain to me the NFL because I don't get it. I don't get it. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Waller, so glad that you could be with us. I know everybody's going to be taking a look at this and say, Carson Wentz, Carson Wentz, I told you Carson Wentz, Carson Wentz, Carson Wentz. Understood. Carson Wentz deserves some of the blame. But, man, you know that he's far from the only person or the mo- or the person most responsible for this. I- I- I'm sorry. You knew going into this situation where for the Indianapolis culture, and look, Jack, you, you, you can't, I don't give a damn how bad Carson Wentz played. You can't lose to Jacksonville. And against the Jaguars, he wasn't he wasn't awful. He wasn't great. 17 to 29 for 185 yards with a touchdown and an interception. The, the, the Colts didn't lose to Jacksonville because Car- because of Carson Wentz. I mean, that's not the main deal here. I'm sorry, you shouldn't need to have Carson Wentz go Patrick Mahomes or Aaron Rodgers type responsibility for the Indianapolis Colts in the game they need to win to get into the playoffs to uh, lose in such embarrassing fashion to the to the uh, Jacksonville Jaguars. Okay, Wentz was needed to be a major player in a must-win game. He didn't deliver. We know this. We understood this. Against Jacksonville, he shouldn't have needed needed to be. For the season, look, he was he was he was fine. Thirty-five hundred yards threw for over thirty-five hundred yards, twenty-seven touchdowns. Seven interceptions. The problem is moving forward, though, is that we've now seen there's now enough evidence. Because remember when he was traded from Philadelphia to the Indianapolis Colts, it was a situation where he's going to get back with an offensive coordinator. He's going to get back with a coach, which was his offensive coordinator when he was with Philadelphia. And when he had his best seasons in Philadelphia, Frank Reich was the offensive coordinator. Now he's going to be back with his old coach and everything is going to be fine and everything is going to be dandy. And he's away from that rigmarole, which was the Philadelphia Eagles and that fan base and that organization. And now he's going to come back back and for the first time in a long time those nagging injuries which he had to miss games and such are not going to be there in Indianapolis and a new fresh start and the new system and all these type of things so the 
Carson Wentz that we saw in 2017 or the Carson Wentz that was supposed to be a franchise quarterback. Carson Wentz, the guy who was the number two pick out of uh, South Dakota State. Carson Wentz, who was supposed to be what, uh, in 2017, Carson Wentz is what Justin Herbert and Joe Burrow are right now. In a few years, when the old guard leaves, that this is going to be, these are going to be the quarterbacks that are going to be running the league. This is going to be the, these are going to be the quarterbacks to where the NFL is going to be putting in front of people who don't follow the game that much. These are going to be the quarterback for those who have stopped watching the NFL. These are going to be the guys that are going to pull you back in. When you're speaking about Joe Burrow, when you're speaking about Trevor Lawrence, when you're speaking about Justin Herbert, right? Um, Carson Wentz was supposed to be that guy before those guys. By now, you guys were supposed to be speaking about Carson Wentz on the same level as a Patrick Mahomes, on the same level of what Tom Brady is doing right now for Tampa Bay, on the same level of Aaron Rodgers. Carson Wentz was supposed to be that guy by now in the year 2021 after we saw him in 2017, if you go back to the narrative of 2017. So guess what? When the Indianapolis Colts made that trade with the Philadelphia Eagles for Carson Wentz, the amount that they paid... For Carson Wentz, they thought that they would be getting the Carson Wentz that would be elevated to somewhere near that level of an Aaron Rodgers, near that level of a Patrick Mahomes, near that level of a Tom Brady and such. So they sent, <clears throat> excuse me, so they sent a 2021 third round pick and a conditional 2022 second round pick, uh, pick which turned into a first round selection when uh, Carson Wentz hit certain uh, parameters in his contract. So they gave away draft capital and they took on a contract of a player who was supposed to be a franchise quarterback. And now we know, guess what? Carson Wentz isn't a franchise quarterback. Carson Wentz is nothing more than a starting quarterback. In my definition, what is a starting quarterback? What is barely a starting quarterback? A barely starting quarterback for me is a quarterback who he needs players around to win a championship. He's not going to be that guy even on a semi-consistent basis, that's going to be able to put a team on his shoulders and lead them to a championship. I mean, there might be possessions. There might be quarters. Hell, there might even be halves, even some games against bad teams where Carson Wentz or a starting quarterback, my definition of a starting quarterback, is going to be that guy where you say, hey, man, you know what? That guy, maybe he can win us a Super Bowl because, damn, you see what he's doing? To the Jacksonville Jaguars? Damn, you see what he's doing to the Detroit Lions? Damn, you see what he's doing to the Chicago Bears? Well, that's great fine and dandy. But what's going to be happening when you play some of the elite teams in the NFL? What's going to be happening when you need to go up against elite quarterbacks or elite defenses in playoff situations on the road and such? The Indianapolis Colts thought that they could get a quarterback that they could revive and elevate and coach up to where, yeah, guess what? On the road at Lambeau Field, Carson Wentz can go toe-to-toe with Aaron Rodgers or, go, or damn sure go near it. In an NFC, or excuse me, in an AFC championship game, yeah, we're going to get a Carson Wentz. We're going to pay for a Carson Wentz that we think can go toe-to-toe, put points on the board with Patrick Mahomes. They didn't get that. This year clearly showed that that, Pat, that, that uh, Carson Wentz is not walking through that door. The Carson Wentz of 2017, folks, ain't walking through that door unless you give him a time machine. If you give him a time machine, he's going to be walking through that door as a Philadelphia Eagle. He's still got, the Colts are still on the hook 
for the remainder of his four-year, $128 million contract extension that he signed. They're still on the books for that. So over the next three seasons, he's going to be, you're going to be speaking about paying Carson Wentz $26.2 million, $28.3 million, with no guaranteed money after the 2022 season. But still, that's not, because of Carson Wentz, there's other things in Indianapolis that need to be upgraded. They need to upgrade along the offensive and defensive line. They need to get more receiving talent, especially if you're speaking about speed receivers. T.Y. Hilton is no longer that guy. Outside of Michael Pittman Jr., no Colt wide receiver had more than 384 receiving yards. The Colts were the only team in the league not to have a, at least two receivers have over 400 yards receiving. The Colts needed an upgrade in that position. How much money can they take on how much money can they how much money do they have what maneuvers do they have what draft capital do they have to try to improve their team and especially take advantage of the prime years of Jonathan Taylor now Taylor yeah he's 22 years old rushed for over 1800 yards on 332 attempts 18 touchdowns all leading the league that's fine and dandy especially with him being 22 years old but as Ezekiel Elliott who is a much thicker bigger, stronger running back than Jonathan Taylor. Ask how long you can carry that type of load, despite no matter what your age is. I mean, that's wonderful right now for uh, Tyrod Taylor. Wow. For Jonathan Taylor. But man, how many years of that type of production does he have in him? Three? Four? And when you're speaking about a Jonathan Taylor who could be top five, top six, really an impact running back, how many years does he have? Let, let, let's be glass half full. Let's be optimistic, all right, and while being realistic. How many years does he have left, Jonathan Taylor, in terms of being a primetime number one running back who's going to rush from anywhere between 1,300 and 1,700, 1,800 yards who's going to be able to tote the bucket anywhere between 250 and 320 times in a season, who's going to be able to have the impact, who's going to be able to have the responsibility that he's being asked and being forced upon because Carson Wentz has proven that Carson Wentz isn't that guy to be a franchise quarterback. How many years did Jonathan Taylor have? Five? Six? When he's 28, 29? How many really productive Uh, running backs over the age of 29 or 30 are there in the NFL, especially putting up the numbers that Jonathan Taylor did this year. You know he's not going to be able to um, be that impactful if he's 28, 29, 30, 31, if he continues to have the load and have the responsibility that he has right now. He's not going to be able to carry carry the rock over 320 times for the next five or six years and still be that guy that we know him of right now. So if you're the Indianapolis Colts, man, you need to make some moves right now. Your window with a franchise running back with an impact player, a player who can win you a Super Bowl, is right now. But if you're spending most of your capital on other things because you didn't have it to uh, spend because you uh, went ahead and acquired went ahead and acquired uh, Carson Wentz, Big miss, big miss, big miss, real big miss. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Chargers rather the playoffs, as I mentioned before, lost a game that they should have lost 
to the Las Vegas Raiders on Sunday night, 35-32. Daniel Carson's 47-yard field goal as time expired in overtime proved to be the game winner. Derek Carr, 20 of 36, 186 yards, two touchdowns, Hunter Renfro holding two touchdown passes. Josh Jacobs ran for a career-high 132 yards on 26 carries, including one score. The only reason why, really, you could say that Los Angeles was really in the game because Justin Herbert was playing out of his freaking mind. Man, how bad does it look now for Chris Greer down there in Miami? Huh? Woo! Drafting Tua Tungavailoa instead of Justin Herbert. I blame Mario Cristobal. If I'm Chris Greer, I'm sending death threats. Well, I'm not sending death threats, but I'm... uh. I'm 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 just going all in in my verbal execution of a human being on Mario Cristobal because it's like man you were the coach at Oregon when you had Justin Herbert he never looked like this in Oregon he never looked like this at Oregon never what what were you doing as an offense what were you doing as a team to hide him from us and despite that he was still a top 5 top 6 tick uh, uh 6 pick but if I'm Chris Greer, my excuse is, did you see him play at Oregon? Yeah, we thought he was going to be good. Yeah, you thought he was going to be good. But stop lying if you said we, you thought he was going to be this good. Hell, you could ask the Los Angeles Chargers. Do you think that um, Justin Herbert was going to be this good, this fast? They would have said no. We thought Justin Herbert would be playing like this three or four years down the road. He's already doing this in year two. <laughs> Who knew? And you take a look at Tua Tungabailoa. Whew. You seen that offense in Miami? Yikes! Not good. Tua Tonga Vailoa as a starting quarterback? Ugh. Not good. <laughs> that that decision to draft Tua over Justin Herbert. Mm. If I'm Chris Greer, if I'm the Miami fan base, if I'm the Miami Dolphins players, and I'm watching Justin Herbert complete fourth down after fourth down and clutch play. Uh, Clutch pass after clutch pass and behind a suspect offensive line and, and receivers that didn't show up to play except for Mike Williams. I'm like, man, I'm looking sideways at Tua and saying, this is what we got instead of drafting him, huh? <sighs> man, but he was he was the only reason why that Los Angeles was still in that game. So let's go ahead and talk about some of the uh, decisions, interesting decisions. I'm not on the sidelines. I'm not at the practice. I'm not a head football coach. I'm not a coach in the NFL. Never been a coach in the NFL. So I'm not going to sit here and just start barbecuing and filleting Brandon Staley. I'll let uh, Rex Ryan, who has experience being a head coach in the NFL, do all those type of things. Or the guys on ESPN, the uh, NFL, ex-NFL players, I'll let them go ahead and do that. I don't I don't have enough expertise. I don't know any of the Chargers. I don't know any of their players. I'm not any. I'm not at any of the practices. I don't know. Brandon Staley knows a lot more about his team. Brandon Staley knows a lot more about his players. Brandon Staley knows a lot more about the analytics. Brandon Staley knows a lot more about the Los Angeles football team than I do. So I'm not going to sit here from far away and sit there and go, what are you doing? Because I don't have the pertinent information or the knowledge to uh, question someone who's been in the NFL. But I will say this. Uh, tied at 32 in the final minute of overtime. Las Vegas had the ball third and four at the Chargers 39-yard line. On the Raiders' sideline, there was kind of discussion about, well, you know, I mean, we're already in the playoffs if we just kind of take a knee and end the game in a tie. The season's over. Who really cares? My contract doesn't state 
whether I get paid if we win, lose, or draw, I'm still going to get the same amount of money. So, you know, the 1st and the 15th of every month, my paycheck won't be deducted because we tied the Los Angeles Chargers on the last game of the season, especially now we're going into the playoffs and we get that uh, playoff type of money. Let's just go ahead and sit on it. Let's just go ahead and instead of risking a 56-yard field goal, let's just go ahead on third down, take a knee and walk out of here and we're in the playoffs. That's the main thing, right? We're in the playoffs. Win or tie, we're in the playoffs. So let's go ahead and do that. Now they would be playing Kansas City if that would have happened instead of Cincinnati. So maybe that went into the picture. Like maybe we should take a tie. Who do we play if we take a tie? Kansas City. Okay, let's try to win the football game. Because I remember the last two games we played Kansas City. Not good. Not good at all. So let, maybe we should go ahead and try for a, uh, you know, the, to convert a third down and try to win this football game. But as they were contemplating this, Staley called timeout with 38 seconds left. And everyone's like, what did he just do? <laughs> Chris Collinsworth was like, what? So the, co- the coach said that the timeout was solely about getting the best personnel on the field to stop an expected Vegas run play. Well, they didn't ex- They didn't stop it. Jacobs ran for 10 yards, and it was like, let's kick this field goal and send the Chargers packing. He said that we needed to get in the right grouping. We felt they were going to run the ball. We wanted to get our run defense in, the substitution, so we could get that get a play that would deepen that field goal. Well, they weren't going to kick a field goal, Coach. They were just going to kneel it and go home, and you guys would have been in the playoffs. So that was the first interesting decision that he made. The other one, which is kind of like very interesting, the first one was to go for it on fourth down and one from their own 18-yard line in the third quarter with the score 17-14 Vegas. It, what, what surprised me was not only was the fact that they went for it, but the play that they called. If you remember, that play that they called was almost a similar one that they ran on third down and they, and they didn't get anywhere with it. And you have Justin Herbert as your quarterback? Now, I, I don't know what the defense was looking like in terms of what was going on on third down, and I don't know what the offensive uh, coordinator saw, which made him call that play. He's much more experienced and much more heady about this than me, so who am I to sit there again and to, uh, you know, armchair quarterback a result that happened, you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm speaking, I'm giving my opinion about uh, a result which I already know happened in terms of they got stopped and the defense held the Raiders to a field goal, but in a game where you lost by three points, and Staley has always said, we, we went back to this with the Kansas City game. Remember when San Diego, yeah, damn. Remember when Los Angeles went for the, uh, went for it on fourth town, like, you know, 45 different times. And after the game, when he was questioned, a game in which the Chargers lost in overtime to Kansas City at home. And many people were speaking about, you know, if he just would have kicked that field goal at the end of the first half, instead of trying to go for it on fourth down, there would be in a position where maybe he would have won the football game. And Staley was like, that's not how I play. I'm aggressive. I'm going to go for it. And I will say this. That's his MO. If that's going to be your MO, stick to your MO. I, I, I don't have the... I don't have the nerds behind me to tell me that on this play, there's a 45% chance of you getting it. If you run up, if you run this play, there's a 72% chance chance. I'm not privy to that information. So if Brandon Staley wants to be the Kevin cash of coaching and managing a football team in those situations, so be it. But Hey man, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. And if that's going to be your MO and if that's going to be what you're known for, 
Hey, man, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I remember in a game against Indianapolis long ago before going for fourth downs was uh, sexy and uh, kosher that Bill Belichick in a game against uh, Indianapolis with Peyton Manning still playing for Indy, he went forward on fourth down with Brady near, near midfield in a game either, I think they were tied. I don't remember. They were either tied or New England was winning or something like that. But um, the defense for New England was tiring, and I guess Belichick was like, you know what, if I get this first down, we're probably going to win the game. So we're near the um, midfield or a little bit past midfield. So I have Tom Brady as my quarterback, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, roll the dice and get it done. He failed. Manning and the Colts got the ball. Went half of the field, down and scored, and won the football game. That happens. It happens to the greatest of them all. So while it was strange, interesting, I don't have the knowledge, I don't have the expertise to sit there and, and kill the guy, especially when we know what the uh, what the outcome was. Because if he would have gotten that fourth down and the Chargers would have drove the ball down the field and scored either a touchdown or a field goal and the Chargers win the game, we're going to be sitting there talking about how daring and how, you know, incredible Brandon Staley is and how gutsy he is for making that call. If you go ahead and you make the fourth down, you're you're gutsy. You know, you're 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 that type of coach. If you don't make it, then you're an idiot who doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, I think Brandon Staley is somewhere in between in terms of, hey man, this is what I'm all about as a football coach. And as long as you're consistent, right? Again, my only thought process was you have Justin Herbert and you're going to run the same play that didn't get you anywhere the first time. Okay. <laughs> okay, Herbert went, what, 34? The man, my man threw 64 passes in that game against the Raiders. 383 yards, three touchdowns. So Justin Herbert, man, is something else. But again, the Chargers' inability to stop the run, their offensive line needs improvement. They need a speed receiver. What happened to Keenan Allen in that game? Mike Williams was the only one doing anything, and that's because he was, like, you know, bigger than everybody else. But that last uh, touchdown that Herbert threw to Williams, damn, that was was awesome. I mean, that guy, that guy can flip and play, no no doubt about it. I was up here a couple of weeks ago talking about y'all better respect Joe Burrow in a couple of years when y'all going to need some quarterbacks, when y'all need the quarterbacks to uh, be putting in front of folks to uh, say, hey, come – you know, come admire our product and give us your money and all that type of stuff. Yeah, man. And, you know, I was up there talking about, you better have Joe Burrow. You better have Joe Burrow next to uh, Justin Herbert. Justin Herbert's the real deal. (laughs) Justin Herbert is the real deal. And it just makes me even sick because at first it was like Washington, my Washington football team, they drafted Chase Young. And at the time, especially after a rookie year, it was like, man, Chase Young is going to be one of those guys that's going to be winning NFL Defensive Player of the Year awards, and he's going to be doing this, and he's going to be one of the better defensive uh, ends in the league, and he's going to be getting a boatload of sacks. And now with this young, emerging defensive front line that Washington is putting in front of us, it gives us an opportunity to really be players moving forward down the line as far as the uh, this era of... Washington football, this is going to be great, this, that, and the other. But now, Young tore his ACL. The defensive line for Washington regressed. We're back to being the same old sorry-ass Washington embarrassing functional, dysfunctional skins that we've always been. And now people are like, man, we drafted Chase Young instead of Justin Herbert. Before y'all go nuts, remember this. 
The reason why we didn't draft Justin Herbert was because the year before, Daniel Snyder wanted to draft Dwayne Haskins. Above the recommendations of Jay Gruden and everybody else who knew what they were talking about with football. They knew that Dwayne Haskins wasn't ready. They knew that Dwayne Haskins was a joke. They knew that Dwayne Haskins could not be the quarterback that Daniel Snyder thought he was going to be. But no, Daniel Snyder, because I believe that uh, Dwayne Haskins went to the same high school in the D.C. area that his son did, or he had some type of uh, connection doing that, that, yeah, let's go ahead and we draft uh, Dwayne Haskins. He did all this stuff at Ohio State. He put up these gaudy numbers, and let's go ahead and draft him. And when the owner says go ahead and draft him, the one who's paying your paychecks, what do you do? You have to go ahead and draft him. So that was going to be the project. That was going to be a situation where, yeah, Dwayne Haskins, he isn't ready this year, but he's got the arm talent, he's got this, he's got that, that in a couple of years, he'll be rip-roaring, ready to go for us. So even with the ways that he struggled in his first year with the team, it was always like we're going to invest the time and effort to build him into a starting franchise or a true starting quarterback. So that's the reason why we didn't draft Justin Herbert because we were so enamored and so determined to make something out of the draft pick, which everybody said was a complete and utter joke. So there we go. Thank you very much, Daniel Snyder. Thank you so goddamn much. Chase Young might turn into an awesome football player, but man, what are we lacking right now? That's right. Besides a competent owner, a quarterback. Could have had one. The number two pick, we could have drafted Justin Herbert, but no. We had to see what we could do to save the career of Dwayne Haskins. By the way, how is Dwayne Haskins doing right now? Where is Dwayne Haskins right now? What is Dwayne Haskins doing right now? Well, that's right. He has one one and a half feet out the door as far as his NFL career is concerned. I really hate my Washington football team, but why am I a fan? Because I'm an idiot. When we come, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, like, what can I say? Just being truthful when it comes to my love and passion for NFL football teams. When I come back, I want to uh, go ahead and talk about the NFC, talk about some of the first-round games, and very quickly talk about San Francisco doing some things. And head coaches were fired at the uh, NFL on Monday. Going to uh, give you my thoughts and opinions about that. Really? Brian Flores being fired? Was there racism involved? No, 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 I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. Wendell's World in Sports. 
I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. End of the uh, last, uh, my last segment of the program. I'm going to be giving my, going to be giving my special dedication. I'm going to be giving my tribute to the legendary, to the pioneer, to the greatest, to the hero, the icon, Sidney Poitier. It was funny. I was in school today. Uh, but uh, Mesquite and I uh, had a class I was substituting for and uh, on I was finishing up some touches on the uh, tribute what I wanted to say to uh, Sidney Poitier so I had his picture up on the computer screen so I asked one of the girls come on up here real quick she was in ninth grade so come up come up here real quick I said I'll let you guys leave early there's only two minutes left to go in class so whatever I was I'll let you guys leave early if this Jane Doe, I'll call her Jane. If Jane can tell me who this person is right here. And I had a picture of Sidney Poitier. Didn't have the name, but I had a picture of Sidney Poitier. So she looks at the picture. She looks at me. Befuddled. Bewildered. No, j- just nothing there in terms of who I know. Nothing there in terms of who this person is. Looked at him. Looked at Poitier. Looked at me. Looked at Poitier. Looked at me and said... Is that you? <laughs> it was a picture from 1967 when Poitier was, I believe, 40 years old. Looked at the picture. It was black and white, 1967. Looked at the picture, looked at me, looked at the picture, looked at me. Is that you? Are you sure that's not you? <laughs> look at me and look at this guy. Do I look anything like Sidney Poitier? Anything. Now, I wish I had his acting talent and I wish I had his money. And I wish there was a lot of things in terms of Sidney Poitier I wish that I had. I wish that I could be uh, attributed to or some similarities in terms of, oh, yeah, me, Sidney, yeah, we're, we're on that same level. Or, yeah, me, Sidney, yeah, we can make that connection. Me and me and Sir, Sir Sidney Poitier, looks ain't one of them. <laughs> Sidney Poitier was a leading man. Sidney Poitier was a movie superstar. Take a look at him and take a look at me. There ain't... Does, does anything about me? Take a look at my, uh, take a look at this mug right here. Take a go to my YouTube channel and take a look at me. Is there anything that screams Hollywood leading man in it? No, no. I have a lot of talent, but movie star good looks ain't one of them. Knowing is half the battle. So I thought that was, I thought that was pretty good. So I to explain to her exactly who Sidney Poitier is. Played a couple of his movie clips to let them know that hey man you with I mean y'all y'all are with the you know the bang bang the shoot 'em up the you know the death the gore the special effects the transformers the Marvel comics the Spider Mans and all that kind of stuff that's your genre of uh, acting that's your genre of movie going you might be a Leonardo DiCaprio fan and such but for the most part you guys have absolutely no idea what acting is all about. You don't know about the Denzels. You don't know about the Tom Hanks. You don't know about the Michael Douglas. You don't know about the Humphrey Bogarts. You don't know about the Lauren Bacalls. You don't know about the Ingrid Bertmans. You don't know about the uh, Morgan Freemans. You don't know about the uh, Spencer Tracys. You don't know about any, you don't know about the Lee Jacobs. You don't know about the Henry Fondas. You don't know about any of them folks because you've been inundated with dumbass movies starring Vin Diesel Broken woodbines of the world. So that that's what you're used to. That's what you consider great acting. Which is like me taking a pile of shit, putting it on a plate, serving it to you, and saying it's for the main 
uh, filet mignon cooked by Bobby Flay and, uh, and Michael Simon. Dig in. You don't know any better. You don't know what real food is all about. You don't know what fine cuisine is all about. You don't know what, uh, what, what, what an iron chef can make with the greatest of ingredients and putting on your table. If you knew that, then the shit that you're eating right now, you would have nothing to do with for the most part. So yes, I'm going to try to see what I can do for a select few to inundate them in terms of what true acting, true skills, what a legend is all about. So I showed them the uh, clip from Guess Who's Coming to Dinner where Sydney is having the discussion with his father in terms of uh, he's going to marry this white woman and there's nothing that you can do about it. And in the world that we live in today, you see yourself as a colored man. I see myself as just a man. In fact, I have that clip at the end of the uh, segment of the at the end of the show. So I thought it was pretty funny. Looked at looked at the screen, looked at me, looked at the screen. Looked at me for a little bit, looked back at the screen, looked back at me. Is that you? Interesting. Wendell's World in Sports, what kind of a mask am I wearing? Wendell's World in Sports, so glad that you could be with us. All right, the NFC uh, playoffs. As I mentioned before, Green Bay had the first round bye. First round games, Philadelphia at Tampa, San Francisco at Dallas, Arizona at the Rams, the most interesting team, I think, in the first round. And remember, I was speaking about the opening segment. I've been speaking about this when you're speaking about the NFL, that the who's going to be that wild card team, if there's going to be any upsets in terms of the division leaders, the division winners, the top four seeds in the NFL, which team has the best chance from the AFC and the NFC to upset the apple cart and beat one of these squads? Now, my selection for the AFC was the Indianapolis Colts. <laughs> my bad. So I have to revisit that. But for the NFC, my dog that's still in the hunt for pulling an upset is still there. I'm speaking about the San Francisco 49ers. It's, it's almost to a point, really, if you think about it, that if the 49ers beat the Cowboys, would you consider it an upset? You might be a little bit surprised, and you might be a little bit, if you're a Cowboy hater, then you're rooting for the Cowboys to lose. So I don't know if you would be really contemplating whether it would be an upset or not more than you would be ecstatic that the Cowboys lost. So whether it's an upset or not, who really cares? But if you think about it, I, the the Cowboys have been up and down. How much can we take into the 50 burger that they put on the Philadelphia Eagles? I mean, they put a beat down on my Washington Snyder skins and then they came back the next week and lost to the Arizona Cardinals at home. So how much can we read into that? Um, but with the 49ers, I mean, they're playing some really good football, finished the season 10-7, and road victory over the LA Rams in overtime 27-24 this past Sunday. The 49ers have won four of their last five games against the Rams, a game in which... Them boys were playing. This wasn't the situation, as I mentioned before earlier in the podcast, about the Rams played their starters half the season and then or half the uh, game, and then they went ahead and put in the backups and this, that, and the other, and they treated it more like, let's just get out of here without any injuries and we'll move on to the playoffs type of game. The Los Angeles Rams were playing that game to win because they still had the situation where they could win the NFC West. So those boys were playing. And when the Rams got up 17-3, to 
And at halftime, they were winning 17-3, to and they only had 83 yards of offense in the first half. How many people here thought that in the second half, the San Francisco would accumulate 366 yards and now score them 24-7 to to win in overtime? How many people thought that Jimmy G had the type of performance that he had in the second half with an injured thumb? How many people thought that was going to happen? Debu Samuels. Debo, I call him Debu, 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 had a had an awesome game. And I don't know, maybe they got inspired when after the uh, one touchdown, the Sean McVay came running out on the uh, field and started giving high fives and doing what he was doing, showing his, showing his passion and, and enthusiasm. And the 49ers took a look at that and went, oh, really? So maybe that was a switch. Who knows? Who knows? That's not the reason why the Rams lost, but who knows? But, um, you know, it's a situation where you take a look, take a look at the San Francisco 49ers. You know that you know what they remind me of. Armando Vasquez is going to appreciate this. You know what the San Francisco 49ers remind me of. Julio Cesar Chavez, and I say it because of this. The, the, the 49ers on offense, Debu Samuels Samuels is not that guy. You know, he's not a speedster. He's not a game breaker. He's not a take the top off the defense type of guy. The San Francisco 49ers on offense. They don't have that dynamicism. I'm using that word again, dynamicism. In terms of they don't have that home run hitter. They don't have that quarterback that, you know, can make plays out of his ass or just, you know, that that elite quarterback that can wow you with his arm strength or wow you with his passing ability or wow you with the talent. They don't have a Josh Allen. They don't have a Patrick Mahomes. They don't have an Aaron Rodgers type. On offense, you know, Debu Samuel is a guy that, yeah, you know, he's a elite football player more than I think that he is a receiver. I think he's a great receiver. Don't get me wrong. I mean, Debo Samuels is a really good receiver, but what makes him so valuable, what makes him a player where he should be gaining some type of discussion when we're speaking about the MVP, not that he should win the MVP, but he should be in the discussion as far as, you know, giving him that respect is because he can beat you in so many ways. You know, you're not going to be running go routes for Debo Samuels, or as I like to call him, Debo Samuels. You're not going to be doing that type of, he's not that type of player. You know, he's not going to he's not going to turn a, a five-yard slant into an 80-yard touchdown pass on a consistent basis or with the same type of fear that someone like a Jamar Chase of the Cincinnati Bengals might put into the fear as far as defenses are concerned, turning a short get into a long touchdown run. He, he doesn't have that. He, he he's, he's, he's a guy that can beat you with so many different ways. He's jack-of-all-trades in terms he's extremely good as a wide receiver, but he's also very good in terms of out of the backfield. He's a guy that, as we saw against the Rams, can throw a touchdown pass on a, on a, um, in, in that situation. In that, in that, uh, given that option. So, th- this is a situation outside of him and George Kittle have been playing some marvelous tight end, not just as far as being a receiver is concerned, but also being a blocker, he seems to have found his second win in terms of being that devastating guy that we knew for years and years, just a couple of years ago. He, he's turned back the hands of time and become that type of a force. But for the most part, the Rams don't have that 
excuse me, the 49ers don't have that, shall we say, knockout power. If I want to bring it back to a piece of Mondo Vasquez, the uh, boxing fan who I educate on a regular basis, the, the, the San Francisco 49ers, they're not, um, they're not, the, they're not Deontay Wilder in terms of they'll just set you up and they'll just hang around and they'll keep the, 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 the contest close and then they'll land that devastating right hand game, set, match. They're, they're, they're not that type of team. They're like Julio Cesar Chavez, where it's like over the course of a boxing match, if you watch Chavez, JCC, if you watched him fight, what was it all about with him? It was the ability to take punishment. It was the ability to take a punch. It was the ability to not just take a punch, but deliver two in return. I'll let you hit, I'll let you hit me in my thick-sized cranium as much as you want, because guess what? For every time you hit me in the head, I'm going to hit you three times in the shoulders. I'm going to hit you three times in the belly. I'm going to hit you three times in the ribs. I'm going to hit you three times in the chest, and I'm going to hit you a couple of times in the face. So you might not be feeling it so much in round one or round three or round four, but guess what? In this 15-round fight, because Chavez fought a good number of his fights in his career, when they actually had 15 rounds before... Ray Mancini, Ray Mancini killing Dooku Kim kind of screwed that up for the most part, put the final nail in the coffin of having 15-round fights. But starting round five and round six and round seven, yeah, those shots that JCC was hitting on the arms, on the shoulders, on the wrists, on the tips, on the ribs, on the chest, and the you know on the, in the, on the solar plexus, in the stomach, and in the head, that, that shit started to wear folks down. Ask Meldrick Taylor. It started to wear them down. So guess what? By round 9, by round 10, by round 12, by round 14, uh, they were done. Because of the accumulation of punishment that Chavez was dishing out to his, to his uh, opponents. Same thing bringing it back to football. That's the same thing with the San Francisco 49ers. 49ers aren't going to go out there and knock you out with one punch. It's just a steady stream of just beating you down beating you down. Another example, they were the, they're the Jim Harbaugh, David Shaw type of Stanford football team when they were rolling. They're just going to wear you down. They're just going to beat you up. They are just going to continue to be physical. They're going to run the football. Kyle Shanahan is going to call a masterful game. And before you know it, at the end of the, uh, at the end of that game, what did the LA Rams look like? If we were going to be comparing this to, it, it was a similar situation with, Julio Cesar Chavez when he fought Meldrick Taylor in the first fight, right? Taylor came out like a ball of wax, man. Taylor's speed, quickness, doing all those type of things, boxing beautifully, doing his thing, right? Chavez, older, slower, you know, prodding, methodical type of deal, right? And then those first five or six rounds, seven rounds, even eight rounds, what was happening? Meldrick Taylor was putting on a boxing display and piling up the points and having a big lead, correct? Kind of like what happened in the game this past Sunday between the Rams and the 49ers, right? The Rams come out doing their thing, moving the football, this, that, and the other. Before you know it, at halftime, they're ahead 17-3. The Los Angeles, uh, the San Francisco 49ers only have 83 yards of offense, this, that, and the other. But what happened in the second half? San Francisco still kept with their game plan. All of a sudden, they didn't turn Jimmy G into Aaron Rodgers. They didn't ask him to have the responsibility that the Arizona Cardinals give um, uh, Russell, um, Kyler Murray, or what the Buffalo Bills in terms of responsibility give to Josh Allen in terms of winning 
a football game. It wasn't like, okay, we're down 17 to three. Okay, Jimmy, we're going to put the ball in your hands. Go out and win it for us because we're going to do what the uh, Los Angeles Chargers did against the Las Vegas Raiders in the second half, especially in the fourth quarter in overtime. You're just going to go back and sling it, sling it, sling it, sling it, sling it, and then then after that, go ahead and sling it again. That wasn't the game plan of San Francisco. We're just going to keep doing what we're doing, and sooner or later, just like in round 9, 10, 11, and 12 against Chavez, Meldrick Taylor broke. Meldrick Taylor dropped. Now, you can thank Richard Steele for that bogus bullshit decision to stop the fight with two seconds left, which basically ruined his career as a top-notch official. Thank you very much, Don King, on that one. But it's the same thing with the Rams. By the time they got the overtime, man, the Rams were done. And it was that steady, steady beatdown that the San Francisco 49ers gave them. Matthew Stafford threw another interception to gain more momentum for the comeback for... San Francisco, and that's the way they play. That's the way they're going to go ahead and win this. If they're going to win the Super Bowl, that's the formula that they're going to have. That consistent physical attack. They ran the ball against the Rams 31 out of their 66 total plays for 135 yards. Had the ball for almost 37 minutes. Garoppolo, 23 of 32, 316 yards with a touchdown. Two interceptions, all while playing with an injured thumb. But what gave him the ability to go ahead and have a game like that where he passed for over 300 yards? It was all because of the physicality and the commitment that the San Francisco 49ers had on the offensive end to wear down. That defensive front four, the way they're playing right now for San Francisco, they're going to get after the quarterback. Nick Bosa and the fellas, they're going to punish the quarterback. And they're going to stymie a explosive uh, offensive uh, offensive squad, see Dallas. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if the San Francisco 49ers went ahead and did a number on the Dallas Cowboys. It wouldn't be surprised at all. Again, you're taking a look at the Cowboys, the up and down inconsistencies over the last uh, couple of weeks, the last couple of months, especially after Dak Prescott got that injury. It could be a situation where Dallas could be ripe for the upset and who is more able to pick that plum from the upset tree and snack on it and say, mmm, delicioso, like the San Francisco 49ers. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wall is so glad that you could be with us. NFL News coaches who were fired. You're speaking of not surprising being Minnesota firing Mike Zimmer along with GM Rick Spielman. Zimmer was a situation where, look, he won 56% of his games. That's only behind Bud Grant and Dennis Green in terms of uh, percentage, uh, winning percentage. He was 72-56-1, led the Vikings to two NFC North titles, three playoff appearances, had a 2-3 and three postseason mark. And Zimmer signed a three-year contract extension in 2020 to run through 2023. But what happened was, look, the whole deal was they made it to the NFC championship game with Case Keenum as their quarterback. The one year that Case Keenum turned his career around and became a valuable starting quarterback and they lost to the uh, Philadelphia Eagles with Nick Foles to go to the Super Bowl where the Eagles beat the New England Patriots to win their championship with Doug Peterson as their coach. So what happened? Minnesota decided that, you know what, we're going to go ahead and we're going to uh, rock the boat and get ourselves 
a Kirk Cousins. And we're going to pay $90 million, three-year contract, guaranteed. And Kirk Cousins was supposed to be that quarterback that was going to elevate Minnesota to where they were truly going to be winning championships. They truly were going to be winning Super Bowls and have that window open because now they figured that they got themselves an elite quarterback in a in a situation where not too many times an elite quarterback or a perceived starting elite quarterback was available. And we had our question marks in D.C. because Kirk Cousins was good against the bad teams but not really good when the games counted the most. But uh, he fooled enough folks out there to uh, go ahead and give him that money, mainly being the Minnesota Vikings. There was a big free agent, brouhaha, and go after after Kirk Cousins because namely, more, normally a quarterback of that stature is normally not available. But Cousins was. So the Vikings thought, let's go ahead, give him this contract. We have a team that's good enough to win the Super Bowl, and they haven't been close. The best that uh, Kirk Cousins got was beating the New Orleans Saints on the road in the playoffs, and then they got blown out by the San Francisco 49ers the uh, next week. Other than that, they haven't made the playoffs. And if you take a look at the squad from Minnesota, they have some talent. Now, the defense that was one of the better defenses in the league when they were playing with Case Keenum at quarterback and before they got uh, Cousins to... Uh, get that position straightened out. That's not the same defense that it was now, but you're taking a look at an offensive squad that has Dalvin Cook, one of the better running backs in the league when he's healthy. You're speaking about a duo at the receiver position of Adam Thielen and Justin Jefferson. The expectations for Minnesota should be higher or the expectations in terms of, you know what, if, if you're going 7-10 and 10 or 8-9, and nine, whatever the Vikings finished and being out of the playoffs, that's, that's not good enough. In a couple of years, that's a fireable offense with the talent that we have. Yes, again, the defense is not the same. Even some of the offense is not the same. But still, you have enough pieces around that you should be doing better than 8-9 and nine and missing the playoffs for the second year in a row. So I kind of understand the I understand the reason for both of those guys, both Spielman and Zimmer, to go ahead. Because if you're going to uh, do this, you better do it now. Because you don't want to hire a coach and then find out that Spielman is not the answer and then you fire the GM and bring in another GM who's going to have to be married to Zimmer or somebody else. So if you're going to go ahead and overhaul, go ahead and overhaul. Same thing with the Chicago Bears firing Charles, excuse me, Matt Nagy and GM Ryan Pace. Let's just start things all over again. Have the GM come in and uh, situate the obstacle that's going to be put in front of him and get himself a coach don't know if it's going to be a situation where we need a coach because, of course, you know, Justin Fields is the quarterback, so we need a quarterback-centric uh, coach to coach him up and this, that, and the other. Well, that, that doesn't always work. Matt Nagy had two bites at the apple in terms of trying to turn a high-profile, high-draft pick, high-expectations quarterback around. He didn't do it with Mitchell Trubisky, and the handwriting was on the wall that he wasn't going to be able to get it done with Justin Fields. Nagy started strong in his four seasons, 12-4, and four, one coach of the year, but it was very evident that um, this wasn't going to be a good fit. Finished his four-year tenure at Chicago, 34-31. and 31. And as I mentioned before, he didn't do a good enough job developing Mitchell Trubisky, who's sitting on the bench behind Josh Allen in, in, uh, in uh, Buffalo. <clears throat> and he didn't do a good enough job with Justin Fields. So 
who knows in terms of what direction the Chicago Bears are going to go with that. Denver fired Vic Fangio after finishing this third season 7-10 and 10, with the fifth consecutive losing season for the Broncos. And for Fangio, we went 19-30 in the three years on the job. So the Broncos organization is going to hire their fourth different coach since the start of the 2016 season. Instability, yes. Team, um, one of the reasons why the team was looking for another coach is because we're speaking about one of the more passionate fan bases in the NFL, the Denver Broncos, and there was about 10,000 no-shows for each game this season. So the fan base isn't really interested in this team. They weren't winning football games. Drew Locke, Teddy Bridgewater, not the answer. So they're moving in another direction. The more surprising fire that I'm going to be speaking about here on Wendell's World of Sports the Podcast with your host, Wendell Wallace, is the Miami Dolphins firing Brian Flores. Reasons given by owner Stephen Ross, lack of communication and consistency. He said an organization can only function if it's collaborative and it works well together. And I don't think that we were really working well as an organization the way it would take to really win consistently at an NFL level. Hmm, I don't know, man. ESPN Jeff Darlington reported Ross's decision was about relationships and Flores' inability to sustain them, mainly when you're speaking about his coaching staff. The time with the Dolphins featured... Uh, let me see here. Two defensive coordinators, four offensive line coaches. <laughs> it's like it was it was it was a clusterfuck in terms of I think at one time this season he had three offensive coordinators. I mean each one of them had a job under the title offensive coordinator. So I think you had one guy who was calling the plays, one guy who was setting up the plays, one guy who was doing this and the other. So it was like Okay, who's ultimately in charge here in terms of the offense? I know ultimately Brian Flores, the head coach, is in charge, but when you're speaking about who's calling the plays on offense and who's who's supposed to be the main guy here? You, you can't have three guys being labeled offensive coordinators. I don't give a damn what your what your uh, qualification. I don't even I don't I don't care what your job title uh, incurs that to be. Calling the plays Who's supposed to be playing? Who's supposed to be in the year? The quarterback? Who's putting together the game plan? Who's supposed to be calling the plays on fourth and one? Who's calling the plays on third and 15? Who? I mean, what's going on here? So from that perspective, I can see where, look, man, Stephen Ross is like, look, you know what? I mean, this is kind of not working out. But I still think this is ridiculous for him to be fired. Brian Flores, what's his record against Bill Belichick? Four and two? That right there should be able to have him keep his job. I mean, he's proven it. He has the locker room. He wasn't losing the locker room. The Dolphin players were really upset when he was fired. Miami finished the season eight and eight and one in their last night game nine games. Only the Kansas City football team had the same amount of wins or had the same amount of success. The Dolphins are also the first team in NFL history to start 7-1 and and finish with a winning record. So, look, he finished his three-year tenure, 24-25, and 25, didn't make the playoff in any of the three seasons. But if you remember how pathetic and how low and how dysfunctional and how inept and how bad that franchise was when Brian Flores came, and basically some of the mandates was, we're, we're just going to see what we can do to tank the season so we can get the number one draft pick and draft to a tongue of Iloa. 
if you remember, that's one, that was one of the mission statements from the un, unwritten mission statements from the Dolphins organization. So Miami's going to be looking for their ninth head coach since 2005. Many people are saying it should be Jim Harbaugh. There's ties, personal ties between Stephen Roth, the owner, with Jim Harbaugh, the head coach at Michigan. But right now he's like, look, man, I just want Jim Harbaugh to be coaching my alma mater, alma mater in Michigan. He's doing a great job with that and the other. But Jim Harbaugh has said that he's made himself available for an NFL head coaching position. The Bears are interested. The Las Vegas Raiders are interested. We'll see. We'll see. The question that I have before I go to break is, what's going to be the fallout from other teams and coaches with now Brian Flores being available? With all the coordinators, it really hasn't been a quote-unquote hot coordinator this season or a hot head coach that is going to be getting the, you know, a huge amount of love from these from these teams. But now with Brian Flores is available, being available, what what does that mean for a team that would say, like for instance, uh, the Giants um, just got rid of their uh, coach coach today, so now they have an opening. What does that mean? How what what influenced the Giants to do that? Firing Joe Judge when only a day ago they were like, nah, he's good, he's safe, he's coming back. How much did Brian Flores becoming available all of a sudden make it applicable for the Giants to go ahead and relieve Joe Judge of his duties? And how aggressive, if they're going to be aggressive at all in terms of going after Flores? Which team now, which needs a coach when you're speaking about Denver, Jacksonville, Las Vegas, Miami, Miami's not going to go after him, but Chicago, Minnesota, how... How persistent are those franchises going to be in seeing about getting Flores? And if you're, say, for instance, the Carolina Panthers, the Seattle Seahawks, Detroit, Houston, teams that have said that, you know what, we're going to bring back our coach or hasn't made any noise in terms of having their coaches go. I mean, now how safe is Matt Rule with an owner like David Tepper who wants to win, win, win? made the move for Cam Newton to come back to uh, Carolina because he wanted to make the playoffs this season. What What's going to be the temperature with the Carolina Panthers now that Brian Flores is available and David Tepper, who's, what, a billionaire? So he's got the money to say, yeah, I know I signed Matt Rule to a seven-year contract and this is only year two, but if we can get Brian Flores, I'll take a bite of that apple. So how much of a, how much of an impact is that going to be with the organizations like Carolina, like Seattle, when you're speaking about, you know, Pete Carroll, what's Pete Carroll's relationship with Russell Wilson and what's going to be the barometer in terms of, well, if Russell Wilson wants to leave because Pete Carroll is the coach, how much then are we going to invest into discussing whether it's a Pete Carroll or Russell Wilson type of thing in terms of who comes back. Like if Russell Wilson says, I'll only come back if Pete Carroll is gone, how much stock are we going to put into that if it comes down to that notion? Because if we can maybe get ourselves a Brian Flores, it would make it more appetizing to say bye-bye to 70-something-year-old Pete Carroll. Same thing in Detroit. Look, man, the uh, Lions, the players played hard for Dan Campbell. But you're really going to try to tell me that if you had a choice between Brian Flores and Dan Campbell, that you would go with Dan Campbell? The Giants, as I mentioned before, are looking for a job. David, uh, are looking for a coach. Uh, David Culley, the coach for Houston. I mean, what's going to be 
his what's going to be the organization's reason for keeping him if Brian Flores is available? So all all of those things play into who's going to be the uh, next head coach moving moving forward. So you know Jim Harbaugh has thrown himself into the mix. How much is this a play of? I want the money back that I uh, gave away when you um, redid my contract. How much is it is ego? How much is it is Jim Marball throwing up the middle middle finger to his alma mater to say, oh, you, you thought I was done? Oh, you were trying to, uh, you know, have paved the road for me to leave by uh, slashing my salary and, the, and that type of thing? Yeah, I don't think so. How much is it that Jim Harbaugh just wants to get back to the NFL? How much is he just, look, man, I'm, I'm an NFL coach. All this bullshit that I first got into in terms of NIL and player transportal and uh, players finding new freedom and new uh, new ways to flex their muscle and kind of putting me at the uh, situation where it's like, if it's going to be like this, if you're going to give this type of power, if you're going to give this type of flexibility, are you go- if you're going to be giving these type of uh, opportunities for college football players to do this shit, I might as well go ahead, go back to the NFL and deal with these situations, but at least I'll be dealing with grown men. I won't be dealing with 18-year-old kids. I won't be dealing with parents. I won't be dealing with guardians. I won't be dealing with mentors. I won't be dealing with any of that nonsense. I can go and deal with grown men and their agents in the NFL instead of doing it with this. And, oh, by the way, I'll actually have an offseason. I won't have to be worrying about recruiting 24 hours a day and kissing the asses of 17 and 16-year-olds and beg them to come to my school and that type of stuff. So... Jim Harbaugh looking to get himself back into the NFL, it seems like. At least he was honest with one of the uh, recruits that he was going after. Told his family that, yeah, he's entertaining NFL offers. So just want to be honest with you. And Normally when a college coach actually goes ahead and does that, it means that he's fiending to get back into the NFL because even if he was entertaining NFL offers, if you really want that recruit, you don't tell him that. You just say, yeah, yeah, you know, hey, you know, we'll we'll see what happens. So the musical chairs of the NFL coaching profession, they're going around and they're going around and they're going around and where does it stop and who gets on? As of right now, nobody knows. No, we need it so proud. We got to have it so proud. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Just want you to know when you're listening to Wendell's World in Sports, please be aware that this show is being run, is being powered by 100% soul power. You got that right. Wendell's World in Sports. Hey, go check out my YouTube channel. I'm going to be doing a video on Sydney Poitier, and I'm also going to be doing a video about my Georgetown Hoyas who will be back in action on <clears throat> on Thursday against Butler. 
And I'm also going to be doing something <coughs> excuse me, concerning the NBA. Clay Thompson's return, what's going on with the Brooklyn Nets, all of those things I'm going to be speaking about normally, especially until the uh, NFL season is over. And with college football now in the rear view, I can go ahead and add some more of the NBA, the love of my life, to my audio podcast. But my video podcast, I'm mainly going to be speaking about what's happening in the NBA and leave the NFL and the playoffs and the Super Bowl and Mainly that stuff is going to be on my audio page. So if you want to get more and more on me speaking about what's happening with my Georgetown Hoyas, and you know that you do, and you want to be hearing me speak about some other things, and mainly the NBA, my YouTube channel is going to be the genesis for that. It's going to be the star of that show. And the NFL for right now is going to be the star of the audio, the audio podcast. Wendell's World in Sports I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So let's go ahead and speak about some college football because the season is now over. Same conference, new champion. Georgia wins their first national championship in 41 years, 33-18 over Alabama. They outscore the Crimson Tide in the second half, 27-9. Final score of the game is pick six. With under a minute left to play, secured the victory for Georgia. Kirby Smart was dancing in the street like Martha and Vandellas and dancing on the ceiling like uh, Lionel Richie. So, good for him. I think the key of the game, and, and let me be straight honest with you. I was watching this game in a hotel room because I spent the night in Mesquite last night. Didn't really feel like waking up at 4.43 in the fucking morning to drive 80-something miles to be at work by 6.45. So, I said, screw it. I'm going to be staying at a hotel. So, watching that game, I was dead tired and... It was on the level of very boring. I don't know. For some reason, the game really didn't have a lot of interest for me. I don't know why. I don't know if it was because of it was Georgia, Alabama. I just seen the show two weeks ago, even though I knew that Georgia was going to play a much better game than they did the first time. The first time they played Alabama, I thought it was a situation where, look, they had been rocking and rolling and blowing out everybody and really hadn't played the a team at the level of Alabama. So, this was the first time that they actually saw the speed and they actually were going up against athletes and players that were just as good, sometimes just as, you know, better than they were. So I think it was a situation where they had to get kind of used to the speed, the level of play that they hadn't been forced to play at a level that they weren't going to play. You know, they hadn't played for the entire year. So they went ahead, rectified that situation, also helped the, uh, Bulldogs of Georgia that uh, John Mechie and another one of their top wide receiver was out of the game and they had to rely on freshman wide receivers and and possession receivers so the Crimson Tide were down that dynamic but uh, I think the right team won but I, I just wasn't into it I thought the uh, first half was uh, kind of boring fell asleep a couple of times watched a little Modern Family instead I'm sorry when you get to have the opportunity to watch Phil Dunphy do a thing over a boring college football game. I will take that 100 times out of 100. But for the most part, the the, the uh, best team won. And I thought the best team in college football all year was Georgia. I thought Alabama was one of the best teams. So it wasn't a situation where I was, you know, my definition of enjoying a championship game is the two best teams playing, as I mentioned before. I don't care if they're from the same conference. I don't care if they're from the same state. I don't care if they played each other 1,500 times. I don't care. I want to see the two best teams go for the championship. 
and these were the two best teams. But for some reason, last uh, night, I really wasn't into it. But uh, Georgia won. I thought um, from when I was watching the game off and on, the fact that the the, the, the matter of the, the, the keys of the game was Alabama not having their full squad in terms of receivers are concerned. And I thought Georgia's defense, especially along the defensive line, Ben, but don't break. How many times did Alabama force? Uh, how many times did uh, Alabama have to kick field goals because they couldn't get the ball in the end zone? Bend, but don't break with that Georgia defense. At five field goal attempts, they blocked one of them. The one touchdown from Alabama came after a turnover at the Georgia 16-yard line. So they were working with a short field. And Georgia outplayed Alabama, as I mentioned before, along the offensive and defensive line. You take away the sacks because sacks count as far as rushing yardage is concerning college football. Georgia outgained Alabama on the ground, 164 to 73. That's domination along the offensive and defensive line, Holmes. Zamir White, James White, average eight yards per carry on 19 attempts. I mean, right there, it seemed like I mean, Georgia had balance. As I mentioned before, Stetson Bennett didn't have to throw the ball 45 times to win the football game. Now, if Alabama converts some of those five opportunities in the red zone and puts some more points on the board, for the most part, Alabama was in the lead, especially in the first half, but it was always a touchdown away from Georgia retaking the lead or having it be a real football game. So you didn't need Stetson Bennett to win the football game for you. And Georgia threw the ball 26 times. They ran it 30 times. You could say that they ran it maybe 24, 23 times. If you don't, if you discount the runs by Stetson Bennett, which which weren't design runs, but there was balance in that offense, which mean, A, you didn't have to rely on a walk-on, Stetson Bennett, to win a football game for you. B, the way that defense was playing, you didn't have to rely on Stetson Bennett trying to put up major points on the board. Bennett made a few plays. That's perfect in terms of what that offense was all about. The running game was controlling the uh, game for Georgia on offense. And on defense, because that line was controlling Alabama's offensive line, you had to have Bryce Young throw the ball over and over again and really not get any type of uh, real rhythm within the offensive scheme for Alabama. It just seemed like when it got to be second and eight, because if you're Bill O'Brien, the offensive coordinator, you needed to run the football sometime. You didn't. You just couldn't have Alabama sling it time after time after time. The problem was is that they weren't getting any meaningful yardage, which meant that on second or third down, you were shrinking the playbook because it was second and eight. You knew that Alabama was going to throw the football. And because of that, Bryce Young really didn't have the rhythm without their best receivers. Could he get it done? As I mentioned before, John Meshi was out. He suffered an ACL tear in the conference championship game. And Jamison uh, Williams was injured early in the second quarter and he missed the rest of the game. So it was a problem. And when you have Alabama throwing the ball 57 times and running it 26 times, against a defense like Georgia, that ain't going to happen. So congrats to the best team in college football this season, Georgia, the right team, the best team won. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you can be with us. So moving forward now, what does this mean for Georgia and for college football in general? The Bulldogs were on a, the Bulldogs, Georgia was on a seven-game losing streak to Alabama. This included three losses in the SEC championship game and double overtime defeat in the 27 national championship game where 
Tua threw that uh, touchdown pass to Devonta Smith for the uh, win. What's what's the next deal here in terms of what Georgia football is all about in terms of the elite football programs? Is it now? Should we say, are we starting the process that Georgia is going to be replacing Clemson in terms of the upper echelon of elite college football programs, the 1% of the 1%. Georgia was already up there because of their success, because of the conference that they play in, because of their fan base, because of the way that they can recruit and the success that they've had under Kirby Smart. So Georgia was already mentioned among the Alabamas and the Clemsons and the Ohio States and the uh, in the in the Oklahomas and such. Now, now with this championship win, with all of the recruiting, with all of the top five and top four recruit recruiting classes that Kirby Smart has brought down to Athens, Georgia, and now that class and now those recruits and now all that talent starting to pay off with a championship, the first one under the Kirby Smart era. Now. We're speaking about Georgia being elevated even more. And when you're speaking about the upper tier of the upper tier, when you're speaking about teams of the the greatest of college football today, now you have to include Georgia. And man, what have you done for me lately? When was the last time Clemson won himself a championship? Are we going to be replacing Clemson? Are we going to be replacing Georgia in terms of being up there? Are you going to take Clemson out? Are you going to take Ohio State out? What was the last time Ohio State won a national championship? Is that fine of a point when we're speaking about what this win means for Georgia? Because now they've won themselves a championship. That was the number one thing that they've done. And they won a championship over their nemesis, Alabama. After they've been thwarted, after they've been negated the opportunity to do so. So, if you're speaking about the last five seasons, this puts the cherry on the top of a strong foundation that's been built under Kirby Smart. If you take a look, if you just throw out the eight and five overall four and four conference record in the first year that Kirby Smart was the head coach, from 2017 to right now, they've gone 58 and 10 overall, 36 and five in conference play. They've been in two national championship games and three conference championship games, all losing to Alabama. How many college, let's put it this way. In that 2017 to present time, the Kirby Smarts have been the head coach. What happens if Georgia was playing in the ACC or the Pac-12 or the Big 12? How many championship games would they have been in? How many times would they have been ranked number one within that five-year span? How many times would they have at least been in the final four? Because you got to remember, they were one of the best teams in college football. They just happened to play in the same conference as the best team in college football during that time, Nick Saban in Alabama. What happened if they replaced Clemson in the ACC? How many championships would Georgia have played for? How many championships would Georgia have won in the ACC? or the Big 12, or the Pac-12. So, yeah, we just sit there and talk about, well, yeah, this is their first championship, this, that, and the other, but you also have to remember who were the team, or who was the team that was negating Georgia from possibly winning more championships and having more accolades 
on their bedpost. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So the only thing that was missing from Georgia in terms of being that squad, that elite squad, was a championship, which they got. Now, nothing left to do but start putting some pros in the um, NFL and start having some Heisman Trophy winners. Because Clemson has Trevor Lawrence, the number one draft pick in the NFL. Deshaun Watson, once he gets his legal orders in order, you're just going to go on the assumption that he's going to return to his status as being one of the elite quarterbacks in the NFL. Alabama has had a Heisman Trophy winner in Devonta Smith. They put two of Mac Jones and other players in the NFL as high draft picks. Ohio State had Dwayne Haskins as a Heisman Trophy candidate. Justin Fields as a Heisman Trophy candidate. Both uh, high draft picks, even though Dwayne Haskins. But Justin Fields was a high draft pick. Nick Bosa was a high draft pick. So the only thing missing from the Georgia program, which would put them on the same level, with Alabama and the rest of those guys, the elites of the elites is to say, hey, look, if you go down to Athens, if you're speaking to a five-star quarterback, hey, come down to Athens because we put A, B, C, D in the NFL. You see on Sundays who's being in the Pro Bowls. You see on Sundays who's being talked about as an elite quarterback. You've seen the NFL draft when you're speaking about players going in the first round from our program. That's the only thing left for Kirby Smart to do. And the way that man is recruiting, that's going to be happening very, very soon. So, Big ups, pretty, well, you, know, you know, the landscape of, of college football has changed in many ways. Transfer portal, NIL, how is that going to affect a squad like Clemson, who despite winning, what, how many games did they win this year? 10, 11, had a nice rebound from a very shaky start. But how is that going to, how is that going to affect Clemson? How is Lincoln Riley going to USC going to affect the landscape of college football? How is Brian Kelly going down to LSU going to impact even more the SEC when we're speaking about now LSU looking to be a player. They finally gotten themselves a strong head coach to go ahead with a strong football program. Now, what impact is that going to have on a Nick Saban and on a Kirby Smart? Because LSU is only a couple of seasons from, you know, off of winning a national championship. And when you're speaking about a strong program, football program with a strong fan base, strong recruiting base, strong fan support. So Brian Kelly comes down, already proven to be a great coach. What impact is he going to have for the LSU program and his competitors? Moving on, Saban's still stuck at seven national championships. He's always going to be in the mix. He's always going to be in the running. But now with Georgia establishing themselves as a true, true upper echelon squad because of getting that national championship. What does that mean? What does that mean now for a program like Oklahoma in the next couple of years going to the SEC? And what can Brent Venables do to continue the momentum and the success that Lincoln Riley had and Bob Stoops had at the last two head coaches of Oklahoma? So there's a whole lot of stuff. Mario Cristobal going down to Miami. What does that mean for the ACC? What does it mean for the rejuvenation of a once proud story dominant football program at the uh, University of Miami? All of these things in the next year and so moving forward is going to uh, tell the tale of a squad like Alabama and a program under Nick Saban moving forward and programs under Ryan Day. What does what does the success at Michigan mean? For a team like Ohio State, what does what would it mean for Jim Harbaugh 
if he did become the next head coach next season of the Chicago Bears, the next head coach of the Las Vegas Raiders, what does it mean for the Big Ten? What does it mean for that region of the country when you're speaking about Columbus and you're speaking about Ann Arbor and you're speaking about um, Happy Valley and you're speaking about that region of the country which really uh, devotes its passion and love towards college football. What does it mean moving forward? So all of these things in the interim and long term, I'm going to be interested in seeing. But congratulations to Georgia, your 2021 college football champions. I don't care what your mother says. Maybe she's gone haywire too. This is between you and me. That's the first thing you said that makes any sense. Because that's exactly where it's at. Yeah, and what I mean to no, say is... No, you it... said what you had to say. You listen to me. You say you don't want to tell me how to live my life. So what do you think you've been doing? You tell me what rights I've got or haven't got and what I owe to you for what you've done for me? Let me tell you something. I owe you nothing. If you carried that bag a million miles, you did what you were supposed to do. Because you brought me into this world. And from that day, you owed me everything you could ever do for me. Like I will owe my son if I ever have another. But you don't own me. You can't tell me when or where I'm out of line or try to get me to live my life according to your rules. You don't even know what I am, Dad. You don't know who I am. You don't know how I feel, what I think. And if I tried to explain it the rest of your life, you would never understand. You are 30 years older than I am. You and your whole lousy generation believes the way it was for you is the way it's got to be. And not until your whole generation has lain down and died will the dead weight of you be off our backs. You understand? You've got to get off my back. I love you. I always have, and I always will. I always loved you, and I always will. But you think of yourself as a colored man. I think of myself as a man. Wendell's World and Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Last uh, segment of the podcast, going to do a special tribute, a special dedication very quickly 
to Sidney Portier. I'm going to go much more in depth in terms of my thoughts and my feelings and the impact that the great, the legendary Sir Sidney Portier, Mr. Portier had on society, on the world, on my YouTube channel, that and my thoughts and opinions about Georgetown and basketball are going to be my next uh, YouTube episodes, my next YouTube videos. But first and foremost, I am going to be giving a special dedication and in-depth look at the great Sidney Poitier, one of the greatest actors over the last 50, 60, 70 years, and one of the greatest legends of them all within that industry in the last 50, 60, 80, 100 years. Passed away last uh, week at the age of 94. If you remember some of the great accolades that Mr. Poitier had, if you're speaking about why he's so well-renowned, why he's so legendary, you're speaking about some of the greatest movies, some of the great movies that he's done, the defiant one with Tony Curtis, Raising in the Sun, Paris Blues, Lilies in the Field, in which he was the first African-American to win an Academy Award for Best Actor in that film, To Serve With Love, one of my all-time favorites, a patch of blue in the heat of the night. Guess who's coming to dinner? They call me Mr. Tips. 1967 had one of the greatest years for an actor in Hollywood history when you're speaking about three movies which were not just you know box office, money-making, spectacularly fantastic, but in terms of the relevance, in terms of how well it aged, in terms of uh, the meaning and the impact that it still has when you're speaking about guess who's coming to dinner to serve with love and in the heat of the night. Um, in fact, for me, to serve with love, I, uh, I watched that. That's one of my favorite movies, which I watched to give me inspiration for what I'm doing right now, heading up to a different environment in terms of uh, going to a high school up there in Mesquite, Nevada. Um, going to a place where, you know, I'm kind of the, uh, I'm kind of the minority of the minority, shall we say. And you're dealing with folks who, uh, you're dealing with kids, you're dealing in, dealing in an environment where they're not used to someone like me in terms of where I'm from and what I'm all about and what I'm putting down. There's a certain, there's a certain ignorance. There's a certain lack of uh, knowledge and education about the fulfillment and the totality of what my environment and what my community brings in terms of what's different from the stereotype, what's different from what they see on TV, from what's different from what they hear on the radio, what's different than what they see on social media, what's different, just not just in, you know, because I'm from a different generation, because I'm from a different coast, but just the way that I try to um, present myself and try to give these kids who haven't been around people like me because of my age and because of where I'm from and where I was born and such want to give these guys a little bit different flavor want to give them a little bit different uh, perspective and let them become educated that um, my community is a it's not a monolith there's not a right in the wall and a night there's not a right in a wrong way to be a black man, just like going up there. There's not a right and a wrong way to be a Mormon. There's not a right and a wrong way to be Hispanic. There's not a right and a wrong way to uh, be Mexican. So it's just for me to uh, present myself. And I used to serve with love, Mr. Thackeray, 
Robert Thackeray, shall we say, in terms of giving me a little bit of inspiration to go up there and, you know, do the best I can. Yes, I know it's a fictional story and that type of thing, but there's a lot of Sidney Poitier in terms of him being a gentleman, in terms of him being educated, in terms of him being polished, in terms of him being a man who walks with dignity. There's a lot of Sir Sidney Poitier in Robert Thackeray. So I'm playing when I go up to Mesquite to present myself. I'm bringing a lot of uh, what I think Sidney Poitier is and presented those kids so they can become a little bit more educated in terms of what the black community is all about it's not about uh you know gangster rappers and all that bullshit from la it ain't easy e it ain't uh ice cube it ain't uh tupac it ain't boys in the hood it ain't all that stuff that those kids see and what they grow up with and what they're presented in terms of what quote-unquote real black folks is all about a lot uh a lot uh, more expansive than that but so basically um you know, using Sidney Poitier, his impact, uh, what he did, what he represented, what he put down, what he left for others, what he left for Morgan Freeman, what he left for Denzel Washington, what he left for David, uh, Jamie Foxx, what he left for a multitude of great actors to come after him in terms of color and such to have the opportunity to open up the doors so they can be leading men, so they can have romantic roles. And not just with uh, straight... Uh, actors either i mean he opened up the door for eddie murphy he opened up the door for chris rock he opened up the door for kevin hardy he opened up the door for richard pryor he opened up the door for black exploitation films he opened up the door for a multitude of opportunities for black folks to present themselves in many different ways not just as an actor but also as a director as well so I always, I always hate when they always talk about <clears throat> he's the first black man to do this and, you know, his, his, his legend or his impact was, well, he did this for black folks. He did, you know, he opened up the door for black actors and, you know, and, and, and that's true. And he should be applauded and he should, should be revered and he should be thanked for the sacrifice that he made for those things to happen. But he was just, he was more than just helping out black folks and that's about it. I mean, this, this was a man who inspired actors of all different races, faces, genders, places, and such. I mean, it wasn't just he was the beacon of light, light and hope and inspiration and motivation for just black actors. He was an inspiration and motivation and all those type of things for all actors, for white women, for white males, for Jewish males, for gay actors, for lesbian actors, all, all, all across the, um, all across the spectrum of life. So sometimes when you, sometimes when the folks kind of, and, and, I, and I know they're, they're coming from the right place, but when you kind of pigeonhole his, his impact on just black actors, it's, it's, it's much more than that. It's it's much more than that. So I want to get into a little bit more with Poitier in terms of the impact that he had. I want to get into the, the I want to get into the Jim Brown, Sidney Poitier dynamic and what went down with the uh, black community during that time. Because after 1967, when he had all of these movies that he was doing, he was criticized by some of the black community by saying that, you know what, I mean, th th what Hollywood is producing in terms of a Sidney Poitier, what Hollywood is, is presenting in terms of a Sidney Poitier to the world about black folks is something that's ridiculous. He's too polished. He's too, uh, 
you know, he, he, he's not what black folks are all about for real. I mean, this guy is being represented as, as you know, like black Jesus in terms of he can't do no wrong and the the, the roles that he's playing, it's unrealistic and, and this type of thing, which goes to show you that when I speak about America being the stupidest country in the world, I don't mean it, I don't, I don't mean to break it down to just one group of people. No, 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 no. The stupidity of this country is long and it's deep and it's varied. To have black folks who whine, who, who, you know, you give them something, they'll whine about anything where it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, we're getting tired of being presented as butlers and slaves and, and cotton pickers and step and fetching and all that kind of stuff. Okay, we'll give you Sidney Poitier. Well, come on, that's unrealistic. Why are you giving us that for? You know, this is wrong. So you, 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 you can't... <laughs> You can't be right on, we, we, we can't do right by anything. So the James Brown, the James, the Jim Brown dynamic with Sidney Poitier was, you know, Jim Brown represents more of what black America is all about with the role that he's taken. And, you know, he's more of our guy than Sidney Poitier is. And, you know, because of that, Poitier had to kind of do some introspection and, and, and reflecting upon what he was doing and where he was going with his career and some of the things that, uh, you know, he was being typecast for, over-idealized in terms of what an African-American is all about, not permitted to have, you know, r properly represent what the black community is all about. So on my YouTube tribute to Mr. Portier, I'm going to get into all that, go into all that. And, and, and basically, as I mentioned before, just kind of speak about when you start labeling and when you start naming the greatest actors of all time, how how ridiculous that is. And when you're speaking about the impact that Sidney Poitier had as an actor, period, not just a black actor, but an actor over the past 50, 60, 70 years. If you want to say hum Humphrey Bogart is the best actor who's ever been out there, a male, the best male actor that's ever been out there, fine. You're not going to have no argument from me. You're not going to have an argument with me if you say Humphrey Bogart or... Spencer Tracy or one of those two. You're not going to get anything from me in terms of no way, no way, no way. But um, some of these lists in terms of naming the greatest actors of all time. And you have Sidney Poitier down there. And really, when you talk about Hollywood and when you talk about the acting profession, when you're speaking about the acting profession on that level, and you start naming the Bogards and the Cary Grants and the Henry Fondas and the um, Jimmy James Cagneys and the Marlon Brandos and such. How how can you properly talk about who are the greatest actors of all time when I'm quite sure that they were great actors who were actors who were just as good as Marlon Brando and Spencer Tracy and Humphrey Bogart and even Sidney Poitier who didn't get the opportunity to show how great they were and how fantastic and talented and diverse they were with their acting craft because of the color of their skin. Katherine Hepburn, the greatest female actress of all time. I'll buy that. You're not going to get any strong argument out of me. Katherine Hepburn was awesome. Katherine Hepburn for women was fantastic for what she did for women in Hollywood. Her strength, her um, you know, her intelligence, her dignity. I mean, the, the, woman's a, the woman's a legend. She's a pioneer, Katherine Hepburn. You're not going to have me say one bad thing about Katherine Hepburn. But, you know, you have Marilyn Monroe up there, but you're not going to mention Dorothy Dandridge? What, could you imagine some of the great black actresses during that time of Ingrid Bergman and Lana Turner and Katherine Hepburn who didn't get the opportunity to showcase their talents, who were just as great and as talented as those women because of the color of their skin? So because of that, how can you name the greatest actors when you had so many that were 
that were denied the ability to show off their true acting and their true talents. So I get into all of that also. But uh, yeah, man, the, the greatest as far as, man, some, some of the uh, movies. My favorite in terms of uh, Sidney Poitier movies, which I'll be watching very, very soon, especially when the football season is over and I can dedicate more time on Saturdays and Sundays and the weekends to uh, binge watch movies, even though I'm not a binge watch movie guy. I don't watch movies too much unless they're really good. But, uh, you know, when you're speaking about for me, hey, man, as I mentioned before, to serve with love, must see, always must. In the heat of the night, awesome. Guess who's coming to dinner? Patch of Blue makes me cry every single time, especially at the end when she finds out or when he finds out that uh, he, she knows that uh, he's a colored man but she wants to uh, be with them and marry him anyway because because of you know of who the person that uh, he is to serve with love. I mean, these are movies, Lilies in the Field. I'm going to be watching a whole bunch of Sidney Poitier movies during Black History Month, which should be every month, but it's recognized only as February. How about that? Black History Month, as I mentioned before. They give us the shortest month and the coldest month of the year. That's okay. We'll take what we can get. But uh, yeah, so those are going to be the deal for me. So I am going to leave this podcast with Lulu to serve with love the theme of uh, the song title of that movie uh, one of my favorites in terms of some of the older music of that time and uh, I'm going to leave it with that so rest in peace you have done quite well you have earned your spot up in heaven if there truly is a heaven you are uh, you are uh, you're uh your place is is, uh, is there. So go up there and let's see in heaven if you can start doing some love scenes with Lana Turner and Dorothy Dandridge and and all them folks, Sydney. You, 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 your wife, Joanna, is still down. I mean, it's, it's acting. I didn't say have an affair with them while they're up in heaven. I'm quite sure that, you know, that love that you have with uh, your wife and the six kids, that's eternal. That's forever. Got that. But the movie roles up there in heaven now, well, you're going to be up there with Bogey and Spencer Tracy and Cary Grant and those guys, along with Lana Turner and Dorothy Dandridge and Marilyn Monroe and James Cagney and Marlon Brando. Man, the movie that those guys are going to be putting up in heaven. Woo, man, man, I tell you, I can wait. I got a long time. Don't want to don't want to be meeting my maker just yet. But man, the movies by the time I get up to heaven, hopefully. The movie that those guys are going to be making, I cannot wait to see that first movie starring Spencer Tracy, Humphrey Bogard, Dorothy Dandridge, Rudy D, Cicely Tyson, Sidney Poitier, and uh, Catherine Hepburn. It's going to be a hell of a movie, man. It's going to be a hell of a movie. I might see that after I check out the uh, Otis Redding Sam Cooke concert. So there you go. All right, two servant love Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports, special dedication to the greatest Sydney Portier. Rest in paradise, in power. Music. <laughs>